thousand described species of bugs. So if you're like, what kind of bug is it? It's one of 91,000 types. Just in the United States alone, there are an estimated 73,000 undescribed species of insect. So when you squish it with your foot, it might be an undescribed species. And here you've just set research back decades. You're setting it back. So just know that that's happening. Uh, next question we had uh, from the kids, uh, do kids make it to heaven? That was, do kids go to heaven? I, I guess they didn't say make it, but do they go to heaven? Um, this is a question that people struggle with quite a bit, and so I wanted to take just a minute to, to deal with this. Um, children live in a time and age of innocence where they're not held responsible for their sin because they're not aware of what sin is and is not. Um, and where do we get this idea? Well, it's, it comes from Deuteronomy. It comes several places, but Deuteronomy is pretty clear. Deuteronomy, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is a book that is kind of Moses' last sermon to the nation of Israel before they take the promised land. And he's telling them all the things he wants them to know before they take this possession. And he says, I don't want you to forget God. So here's what he says. He says, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements and his decrees, his laws and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced this discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. So Moses is telling the adults, he's saying, listen, you are responsible because you've seen it. You've seen God's faithfulness. You've seen God's goodness. You know what he's capable of. The children, they're not responsible, but you are. So what are the adults supposed to do? There's three things they do. The first is they're to observe, observe or obey. Observe, therefore, all the commands I'm giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you may live a long life in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the first thing. The second thing they're supposed to do is to sort of internalize these words. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Don't just obey it, but, but dwell on it, meditate on it. Fix them there. Install them on your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. That's the second thing they're to do. The third thing is this. Teach them to your children talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. So we see that the adults have three things they're supposed to do. They're supposed to obey the law. They're supposed to uh, dwell on the law, meditate on the law, and they're supposed to teach the law to their children. So that way when the children grow up and become of age where they can make their own decisions, then they will be equipped to step into the life that God is calling them to have. So how does this work out practically? I know we've got parents here, and I know parents are always asking this question, like, is my child ready to get baptized? Three questions. We always ask three questions of every kid about to get baptized. The first one is this, do you understand what Jesus did for you? And if the child can tell us, you know, that he's died on the cross, he's come back, uh, that that is, that's really kind of enough. The second question is, do you understand that this is a promise? That you're promising to give your life to Jesus for the rest of your life? And then the third thing that we always want to know is, do you have sin that needs to be forgiven? Uh, that's the most important question. Because if the child is under, you know, sort of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then they're going to say, yeah, I've got some sin that needs to be forgiven. 
if they don't, then when you say, do you have sin that needs forgiven? Sometimes the answer is, no, I don't have any sin. Um, and sometimes the answer is, no, I don't, but my brother has got a lot of sin. And he really needs Jesus. Um, so until you start to feel that sense of you know, internal conviction, we kind of will say, hey, let's wait and keep praying about it. It's really awesome that you want to do this. Um, but you know, let's just keep praying about it until the time is right. God's going to make it clear to you and me. And uh, that really works really well. So that's, those are the two bonus questions uh, we have this morning. But today, the big one is evolution and creation. Um, I've had this one asked a few times through the form. It's, uh, do Christians have to believe in literal seven days of creation? Uh, can a Christian believe in God and the modern theory of evolution? Um, and I think we had it one other way submitted too. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to pray and invite God to be here uh, in this time in conversation, because this is a big one. Lord, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for each person that's here. I thank you for those that are gathering and joining us online, uh, whether they're in Florida or Tahiti, um, wherever they are, God, we're, we're thankful that they're there and that they're here with us through the modern uh, blessings of technology. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to uh, understand your word and to be a little more um, thoughtful in the way that we live out our faith. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're looking at this issue, evolution and Christianity. It's a big hang-up for a lot of people. And it's, there's this perceived discrepancy between faith and science, this perceived discrepancy between the modern theory of evolution and the text of Scripture. Now, here's what I want you to get this morning, is that this is the right place to ask that question. Not only is this the right place to ask that question, but as Christians, we don't need to fear the pursuit of truth. St. Augustine said this, all truth... Is God's truth, which by implication means that the more you pursue truth, the more about God you will know. That the more you go looking for truth, the closer you will get to understanding God. So as a Christ follower, I'm not afraid of science. I'm not afraid of, of what people are discovering and finding out. Uh, I do think sometimes we discover that we can do things that maybe we shouldn't be able to do, uh, you know, i.e. drop a nuclear bomb and wipe out an entire city. I, I have questions about that sometimes, but, you know, but the, the pursuit of knowledge is a good thing. It is an excellent thing. It's something that leads us closer to God. And so we've got lots of great books on this subject. And I just want to acknowledge right now, I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be one, um, and so I'm not going to be able to get into all of the nitty-gritty of some of the details. Uh, There's some great books out there on, on science and faith describing how you can believe in seven literal days of creation, and the folks at you know, the Genesis Museum and the Ark you know, Encounter, all that stuff, uh, they've got a lot of really interesting thoughts on this. A lot of really smart people there uh, will argue for that camp. And then you've got a lot of other folks that will argue on the other side. If you were with us for the problem of God study, and we've got a few of those books extra, if you want one, I'll give you one. Um, they describe, you know, sort of a more day-age type of theory, where each day in the creation account describes an age. And they've got some science that, that goes with that. And, and you know, and that, that works out really well for them. And so uh, I'm not going to get into these two things in the terms of the science and the specifics of that. Uh, because I'm really more uh, a theologian. I'm more uh, a trained Bible student. And so what I want to do is look at the text of Scripture and ask this question. Does the Bible make enough room for both of these views? Or does Scripture sort of push us into one or the other? And the truth is, I'll just let the cat out of the bag right now, that the answer is yes. The, the, the Scripture allows plenty of room for both of these views. 
Scripture allows plenty of room for both of these views. Largely because this, the text of Genesis is not a scientific document. Okay? It's not. It's not a scientific document. It's not written with footnotes and, and you know, lab reports and you know, specific test results. It's not, it's not written this way. It's written with a lot of poetic flair. Uh, for instance, you know, we, we, when we think about the beginning of creation, we think about this guy named Adam. Uh, the truth of the matter is Adam's name means man. And if I was going to tell you a story about God creates a man and he names him man, um, you would probably think that I'm describing to you some sort of parable, some sort of maybe spiritual truth that maybe the history or the specifics are a little lacking. You know, we have this sort of in the English language too, right? If I was going to tell you about the first guy and gal, first guy's name was Guy, and, uh, you know, his wife's name was mother of all living things, which, you know, or Eve more translated literally is just life. Um, you know, we would probably guess if we were reading this or hearing this in the Hebrew, that I'm not telling you a specific story, but rather I'm telling you some sort of important spiritual truth. And if you read through the text of Genesis, it doesn't read like a documentary. It doesn't read like an investigative report. It reads more like a parable. It reads in some ways like a psalm. You know, you've got day one, and God creates this, and it's morning and it's night. And day two, and God creates this, and it's morning and it's night. And it's got this repetition to it. And if you line up all of the things that go with it, you've got light and dark, and then sun, moon, and stars on day three sort of filling. It's like God creates a canvas on days one, two, three, and then he fills the canvases on days four, five, and six. There's a lot of symbolism and imagery and poetry that just fills the account of Genesis and it doesn't read as though something that we should maybe take in the literal sense. Now, some people will argue very much that it does, because the word yom, uh, which is Hebrew for day, means a literal 20-hour period. And in fact, generally, it does. But the Hebrew word for day is used in the first two chapters of Genesis in figurative ways. L let me show you what I'm talking about. Genesis 1.5, it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first, say it with me, day. First day, okay? So that sounds like it might be describing a 24-hour period. Uh, let's just look at this one here. It says, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is going to happen again in one day. But you turn to Genesis 2, and the same word shows up. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, Genesis 2 is going to say in one day, several things take place. Let me, let me tell you what those things are. You tell me if you think you could fit this into 24 hours. First, God creates Adam, and then he gives him the responsibility of tending the Garden of Eden. So he creates him, he gives him a job. I couldn't do it in 24 hours. God probably could. Um, and so this works out well, and then God sees that he's lonely. So how much time does it take you to notice somebody's lonely? Probably a little longer than five minutes, maybe longer than an hour, maybe more than a day. I don't know, you think about it. It says that then God brings all of the animals on earth to him to name and to find a partner. So God creates Adam. God gives Adam a job of being the gardener. He then brings every, he notices he's lonely. He then says, all right, let's bring every single animal I've created in front of you and you'll name them. And then we're gonna see if that's gonna be a good partner for you. So how long would that take to bring all the animals in front of him? But this is what's happening. Uh, Adam's naming the animals. Nope, this is not a good fit. Nope, that's not a good fit. Nope, that's not a good fit. Elephant, not a good fit. You know, we're going through all of the animals, naming them. No good fits found. So then after that, God observes that Adam is still lonely. 
and he fashions a human wife for him using his rib. So again, this is all happening in a day. Then at last he brings Eve before Adam and presents her to him as his new life partner. Friends, this sounds to me like it took a couple days, maybe weeks, maybe even a month. And yet here in Genesis 2, it says that it's in the day that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not trying to push it anything too much, but trying to show you that the text of Scripture uses this word in figurative ways. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility to say that when God is creating things and it's you know evening and morning and happens on the first day, that there's some fluidity in the way that we might interpret this word day. I mean, in our own English language, we use the word day figuratively sometimes. You know, we'll talk about, you know, in the day of this person or in the day of that person. We don't literally mean one 24-hour period, but in their life, in their era. And so a lot of Christian theologians and scientists feel that it fits pretty well if you look at the way that creation is outlined. The earth begins as chaos. And the message of Genesis 1 is quite simple, that God creates the world with order and care. That he doesn't just sort of willy-nilly by accident create the world. You see, during the time of the Hebrews, there are lots of other creation narratives happening. And a lot of these narratives, it means that, you know, the world's created through violence. It's created through happenstance and chance. It's not created with care. It's created with anger, even. And the Hebrew people say, no, that's not how God created the world. God creates it with order. There's a, there's a sequence to it, and it happens the way that he wants for it to. It happens with care. He speaks it into being. And then when it comes to humanity, he, he fashions you know, humans out of clay with his hands, and then he breathes into them with a kiss and creates a unique conscious being that we call humanity. And, and that's the message here. And if you follow through kind of the, the sequence, all of this, it, it kind of lines up with, with what we might think about scientifically. Uh, the world begins as chaos. Water is separated. An atmosphere starts to form. Light and darkness start to take shape through the haze of that atmosphere. Land emerges from the sea. Then vegetation sprouts. Then animals are created, starting with simple and ending with the most complicated, the people. Now listen, nobody was there. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Um, and I know that some of you have studied this very much and you're very committed to a literal six-day creation. And I would say, you know what, that's awesome because that is very clearly described in the text of Genesis. Some of you are saying, you know what, I've spent a little bit of time in Scripture, I've spent a little more time in science, and I just don't see how we can have all of these geologic records and biologic records and all these other things point to, you know, this, this, this earth sort of taking shape over millions, if not billions of years, and I just don't see how this could all be accomplished in seven days. And I would say that that's, there's room for you, too. Because Scripture's outlining something that's really important, that God creates this world with order and care. That's the principle of Genesis, that God is creating the world with order and care for the delight of humanity, his crowning creation and accomplishment. And so I would encourage you, if you've got questions about this, study it for yourself. Again, I've got some copies of the book, Problem of God, I'd be glad to give to you. Uh, read the bibliography there. Uh, he's got, I think, two chapters dedicated to this, this very particular issue. And then go study. Because seeking the truth leads us closer to God. And if you get nothing else this morning, get that. That seeking the truth leads us closer to God. In fact, I think we can all embrace truth in scientific discovery. Whether you are a hardened atheist and you're here because a friend uh, invited you or whether you're here because you're a Christ follower, uh, all of us can embrace truth and scientific discovery. 
The, the problem is that often today it's portrayed as a science versus non-science you know, type of thing. I, I love the problem of God. Uh, has this uh, story at the beginning. Here's what he says. He, he says it's this way. He says the problem's often framed this way. Uh, he says, how often have we turned on the television and heard the host say, tonight we will be talking about faith versus science. Our first guest is a former University of Oxford professor, evolutionary biologist, and best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, holds the answer to all questions. On the other side of the aisle, we have Joe Smith, who will speak for the legitimacy of faith in Christianity. Joe homeschools his kids, thinks Oprah is the Antichrist, and lives in a swamp. Um, friends, that's the caricature of the whole scenario here. Uh, but the, the truth is this, is that faith is not in competition with science. In, in fact, many leading scientists are very faithful people. People like John Lennox, who's a mathematician, astronomer Hugh Ross, a Human Genome Project, uh, Francis Collins, who's also been director of National Institutes of Health, uh, all faithful, devout Christians. Uh, the truth is that modern science was born inside of and grew up in Christian theism. Now, you tell people this, and they don't want to acknowledge it because the church has had a rough history with science. I'll acknowledge that. But Christian theism led philosophers and scientists to look for consistent clues. Here's the thing. These early scientists thought that if you studied creation enough, you would find patterns because it was created with order and care, and God would have created the world with order and care and some consistent. That the, the more they studied the small details, the more they would find clues of a creator. I think this is why the father of modern genetics, Gregor Mendel, he was a monk. He understood that God had left clues about himself inside of creation. Psalm 19 tells us this. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Friends, Psalm 19 is telling us that God has created the world in such a way that would cause us to ask questions, that would cause us to marvel at his creative power, that would cause us to, to look out into the world and go, man, you know, there is a God. There is a God, surely, who made the world this beautiful. These early monks and scholars looked for these patterns because they believed that it had been created by an intelligent creator. And they were convinced that the more they learned and the more they studied about nature, the more they would know about God. And it, and it worked. As Christians, we don't have to fear the pursuit of truth. In fact, we should embrace it because seeking the truth leads us closer to God. As Christians, we should embrace scientific discoveries and advancements as they reveal more of the clues that, that God left about himself in creation. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This does not sound like a man who's afraid of scientific discovery. This does not sound like a man who's afraid that you would find out the real information. No, he says, once you know the truth, the truth sets you free. I, I think this is true in every area of our life. Once the truth is known, it has a liberating quality. Pursuing the truth in any and all discipline should reveal more of God and lead us closer to him. Now, there's this last point here I want us to get into. It says we must pursue truth with humility. Uh, we really need to do that. I think our problem is, is we get a little bit of knowledge and we assume that's all. And then, you know, we sort of ensconce ourselves on a high horse and we say, you know, that's it. I know more than you do. Or I, my mind's made up. I'm decided. Thanks for playing. You know, we'll see you later. Everybody needs to recognize the limit 
of their understanding. There are things we don't know. There are things we won't know until we get to heaven. As a matter of fact, in heaven, we will constantly be learning. So there's an eternal, infinite well of knowledge we're going to only tap into after we leave this life. Uh, Deuteronomy talks about this. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Moses says, listen, there are some things that you don't know. There's some things you don't get to find out. Those things belong to God. So dwell on the things you do know. The clues of God fill our world, absolutely. But God exists in a dimension beyond it. Science studies the physical world. God exists in both spiritual and physical. Uh, Harvard professor uh, Stephen Jay Gould, noted atheist, says this about science and God. Science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. He says we can neither affirm nor deny. Uh, what Gould is saying is, listen, you can't put God in a test tube. You can't observe him. You can't do this. He's like, there's something beyond. Uh, scientists and philosophers describe this as a normal principle or non-overlapping magisterial authority. What does that mean? Let me make it real simple. I'll butcher it, and then you can ask the scientists here in our church to explain it to you. But here's the way I understand it. It's, it's like, take on your like, three-year-old self and keep asking this question, but where did that come from? 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 You see, once you start asking that question enough, you finally get to a place, well, it came from an explosion. Where the explosion came from? What was this hot mass? Where did the hot mass come from? Well, it was there. Well, where did it come from? Well, I, we don't know. Um, that's the thing. Where did all this energy come from? We don't know. Well, well, who squished it all together in the beginning? We don't know. Once you start asking enough questions, you get to sort of like there's this black wall and there's a curtain. It's like behind that, science can't go any further. And we've got to then ask the question, what's back there? Based on the clues of what we see over here, what's back there? This is what we're talking about. And we have to ask ourselves these questions. Where do the clues of nature lead us? Where, where does this created world point to? What makes the most sense about the questions we're asking about the world? What are the deep questions we're asking you know, is it pure mechanics or is it something more? Is it like who we are? You know, what's wrong with the world? What's the solution for the world? You know, where am I going? Where have I come from? These are the real questions we ask. And the answer to these questions is not found in test tubes, but is a theory that exists beyond it. The truth of things that matter most in our life, something like love, maybe you're familiar with this, is not something you can test I mean, you can, you can bring up, you know, two people in love and, you know, run all sorts of scientific tests, but you will never have a definitive answer to whether or not they are in love. It is something you know beyond science. It is something, you know, else. So we've got to recognize we don't know everything. And let's talk about the church for a second. The church gets into big trouble when it pretends to know more than it does. Okay, this is a hard word for some of you to hear, but the church gets into big trouble when it pretends to know more than it does. Don't believe me, just look back in history, back to when the church knew that the world was the center of the universe. And this guy by the name of Galileo, Galileo, Galileo Figaro. Okay, sorry, had to get it out. It was there. Um, so Galileo's there, and he's like, no, I don't think that the world's the center. There's more, like Copernicus, he did this math thing, and the sun, it makes a whole lot more sense if the sun goes in the universe. And the, the church is like, shush, you don't know that telescope, that's, 
get rid of that thing. We don't need that. You know, we just know. And he's like, I don't think so. And they're like, yes, we do. And they put him on trial. It was this whole debacle. But guess what? A few thousand years later, we're all going, yeah, the sun's the center of the world. The church kind of got that one wrong. Friends, you know, we've got to just recognize that there are some things we don't know. And we've got to hold on to mystery. We've got to be willing to have a little bit of humility in the things we think we know. I think all of this is summed up really well by Frederick Buechner, and I want to I give you this quote. It says, The conflict between science and religion is like the conflict between a podiatrist and a poet. One says that Susie Smith has fallen arches. The other says she walks in beauty like the night. In his own way, each is speaking the truth. What is at issue is the kind of truth you're after. And here's how he says this about science. He says, science is the investigation of the physical universe and its ways and consists largely of measuring, weighing, and putting things in test tubes. There's a tendency in many people to suspect that anything that can't be weighed, measured, or put in a test tube is either not real or not worth talking about. That is like a blind man suspecting that anything that can't be smelled, tasted, touched, or heard is probably a figment of the imagination. He says, a scientist's view on such subjects as God, morality, life after death are apt to be about as enlightening as a theologian's views on the structure of the atom or the cause and cure of the common cold. Friends, it's true. We're not really debating truth. What we're really talking about is what type of truth are we after and where can we find the answers for these things? In some ways, we might think of this in, in terms of two different types of truth. And I know that this is kind of a fuzzy way to look at it, but you've got scientific truth where you might be able to test and weigh and experiment and duplicate through scientific method and all these things. But then there's that existential truth, the truth that says, man, you know what? I know that my wife loves me and I know that I love her and I know that we love our kids. And that's real. That's real in a way that I can't explain. That's real in a way that I can't test or prove. It's just real. And it's something that I know, and it's something that, that we know and that we share. In fact, I, I might argue that the things that matter most can't be tested or, or proved through scientific number or crunching numbers. But friends, you know, the question that we want to know the answer to is, where are we going? What's wrong with the world? How do I fix it? You know, these are the things that, that Christ has come for. Now, I, I want to close here by just addressing, because I know in this group we've got probably three or four different people. You know, there's some of you who you're, you're fine with the science and, and Bible thing. You've got this issue settled. There's others of you who this is a real kind of faith, like rocky place for you. And you're, you're, you struggle with it. You struggle with it. You struggle with the text of Genesis. You struggle with science. And you're just, you're just not sure. Um, there's others of you here who maybe you've come because you, you want to believe, but you can't because you've always been told that, you know, there's, there's one way to be able to look at this. I hope that this morning we've been able to sort of, you know, show you that there's room enough in the text of Genesis for a couple interpreting views here. But, but I want to call us back to what's most important, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is real simple. It's that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. If you want to know the gospel, that's it. And the reason I, I, I believe in the book of Genesis is because I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who's come for us, who's died on the cross for us, who rose from the grave for us. He's the one that quotes from the book of Genesis, and so that makes me go back there and look at it. But my faith is in Jesus. That's the one that I pursue. 
And as I pursue truth, I'm, I'm encouraged by Christ's words where he said, if you ask, you know, you receive. If you knock, the door is open. If you seek, you find. Jesus is real clear that God does not play hide and seek with us. He's not playing guessing games with us. He wants to be found. He wants to be revealed. He wants you to find him. So this morning, as we get ready to sing the song, I, I want to challenge you to ask this question. Where is your faith placed is it placed in something like a, a, a method, a science? Is it placed in something that, you know, at best, you know, is, is, a, is a really good guess? Or is it placed in Jesus Christ? If you've got questions about faith and what that means, catch me after service or I'll be sitting down here. I'd love to talk with you about that. Uh, the person that brought you to church this morning, they could answer your questions about God. They could tell you who Jesus is. But if you're joining us online, you can send us a message through many different channels that we've got. But this morning, let's be seekers of truth because seeking truth leads us closer to God. So we don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to be afraid of science. We don't need to be afraid of any of these things because all truth is God's truth. And when we know more of it, it leads us back to him. God, we thank you so much that you have given us not just Jesus who's pointed us to you in the most complete and perfect way possible. We thank you, God, for the truth that's found in Scripture that tells us his story. God, we thank you for the truth that's found in science and in nature that points to the way that you've created the world with order and care. And God, for all of us who seek, for all of us who are pursuing, Lord, would you give us wisdom and guidance? We want to know the truth. We want to know you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand?